The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. The Wellness Community recently joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the largest provider of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. At the end of August, the United States lost a true American hero, Senator Edward Kennedy's recent passing from brain cancer has shed light on a disease that will affect nearly 200,000 more Americans this year alone. On today's show, we're going to take a closer look at brain tumors, clarify misconceptions, offer tips on what you or a loved one can do if you've been affected. Uh, But before we begin, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Regular exercise can reduce a woman's risk of cancer, but the benefits may be diminished if she gets too little sleep, researchers said on Monday. The study, involving 5,968 women, confirmed previous findings that people who do regular physical activity are less likely to develop cancer. But when the researchers looked at the women ages 18 to 65 who were in the upper half in terms of the amount of physical exercise they got per week, they found that sleep appeared to play an important role in cancer risk. Researchers discovered that those who slept less than seven hours nightly had a 47% higher risk of cancer than those who got more sleep among the physically active women. While additional studies need to be done to clarify how getting too little sleep may make one more susceptible to cancer, there is no question that getting adequate sleep has been long associated with health. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention calls sleep loss an unrecognized public health problem, saying Americans are getting less and less slumber. The CDC said the percentage of adults reporting sleeping six hours or fewer a night increased from 1985 to 2006. Sleep experts say chronic sleep loss is associated with obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, cardiovascular disease, depression, cigarette smoking, and excessive drinking. In addition, research has shown that people who get regular exercise have a reduced risk of breast, colon, and other types of cancer. Experts think the effects of exercise on the body's hormone levels, immune function, and body weight may play an important role. In other news, scientists say drugs used to control diabetes may lower the risk of prostate cancer. Recent studies have reported a decreased prostate cancer risk for diabetic men, although it is currently unclear whether use of anti-diabetic medication affects the association between diabetes and prostate cancer. Researchers studied a group of men that were diagnosed with prostate cancer and a group of control men without prostate cancer. The total number of subjects comprised nearly 50,000 individuals. 
Oral diabetes drugs were used by 7.5% of the men with prostate cancer and by 8.4% of controls. The prevalence of insulin use was 2.5% in the cases and 3% in the controls. Men who had a history of taking any diabetes medication had a 16% lower risk of prostate cancer. The decreased risk was comparable for all anti-diabetic drugs, including metoform and insulin. The investigators found that the overall risk, as well as the risk of advanced prostate cancer, decreased with the amount and duration of medication use. While the potential mechanism behind decreased prostate cancer risk for diabetic men is currently unclear, it is very likely that the changes in endogenous hormone metabolism occurring in diabetes have an important role. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. When news spread last year of Senator Edward Kennedy's diagnosis of a brain tumor, people were hopeful that the lion of the Senate would use his tenacity and perseverance to beat a disease that has claimed so many lives. Sadly, Senator Kennedy was not able to overcome his, can- his cancer and, and in his passing uh, has become one of tens of thousands of people who will lo- lose their lives to brain tumors this year. So what are brain tumors? W- what's the difference between benign and malignant? How are they treated? Uh, on today's show, we're going to answer these and other questions so you can be educated and empowered if you or a loved one has been affected by brain cancer. We are joined today by two wonderful guests who are here with us today from the National Brain Tumor Society to help us shed light on brain tumors and brain cancer. First, we have Harriet Patterson. Harriet is the Director of Patient Services at the National Brain Tumor Society, or NBTS. Uh, NBTS is a leader in the brain tumor community, bringing together the best of research and patient services to be a comprehensive resource for patients, families, caregivers, researchers, and medical professionals. Thanks for being here, Harriet. Thanks so much for having me. We are also joined by Mary Lovely, who has a Ph.D. in nursing and is the medical information specialist and associate director of research for the National Brain Tumor Society. Prior to earning her Ph.D. in nursing, she was a neuroscience clinical specialist with a focus on brain tumor patients. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. That's a great name, by the way. It just makes me smile just saying it. (laughs) So, Mary, I want to start with the basics. Um, What is a brain tumor, and is it the same thing as cancer? Kim, a brain tumor is an abnormal growth of cells within the cell or within the brain or inside the skull. It can be cancerous or non-cancerous, and the non-cancerous are the benign tumors. A cancerous brain tumor is one that actually invades the brain, and a non-cancerous tumor is an abnormal growth of cells that are not invading the brain, rather pressing on brain structures. And do you know there are over 120 types of cancerous and non-cancerous brain tumors? Over 120? Yes. Wow, amazing, amazing. So what, what Mary, are some of the common symptoms uh, of brain tumors? And tell us a little bit more about that idea of benign versus malignant. malignant. I know there are sort of technical medical terms. Let's clarify what those mean again, and let's talk about what some of the symptoms are uh, of brain tumors. Well, the word benign and malignant are are terms that people always hear about, and they say, my tumor is benign, my tumor is malignant. A malignant tumor is usually a fast-growing tumor, very aggressive, and it is one that is actually invading the brain. People refer to benign tumors are those that are very slow-growing. Sometimes they can be invading the brain, and sometimes they're not. They're just pressing on the brain. But it's usually the very slow-growing tumors that are called benign. Okay, so you can, have a, you can have a brain tumor that is not cancer. You can have a brain tumor that's not cancer. Okay. 
And then let's go to what some of the symptoms are, uh, Mary, of, uh, of brain tumors. Okay. The common symptoms of brain tumors are a headache, one may have seizures, um, personality changes or emotional changes. Uh, some people have decreased memory. All of a sudden, they just can't think the way they did before. People have speech problems or maybe motor and sensory changes, such as vision changes or a weakness on one side of the body. So those are some of the, some of the classic symptoms that those people might experience. Those are the classic experience. symptoms. If someone has a headache, if they have seizures or personal, personality changes, and these are all new speech difficulties, they will be worked up for a brain tumor. But everybody gets headaches. Do you mean sort of chronic headaches or persistent headaches? No, or? I'd say something that's new and different. If you have a chronic headache and all of a sudden you get a different kind of headache, something that's really changed, that's when you get a new evaluation and, and find out if you have a brain tumor. So when, when fo- if folks are experiencing these kinds of symptoms, should they first go to their primary care doctor? Yes, they should go to their primary care doctor. And usually if they see uh, a cluster of symptoms that, that uh, appear to be some real neurological uh, condition, they'll usually do an MRI with and without contrast. And this will be the definitive diagnostic test to tell if there's a, uh, if there's a brain tumor. And what does that mean with or without contrast? What does that mean? Right. Uh, the contrast is a dye that's injected, and that enhances a brain tumor. Oh, okay. So that's a, that's a way that they can detect whether or not there is a brain tumor. That's right. With that dye, with that contrast. Yes. Got it. Got it. And who, who, would, who would do the MRI? Would it be a neurologist or would it be a... The primary doctor can order the MRI okay. or the neurologist. Or the neurologist. So if you're having, the, the like you said, perhaps some of these symptoms... You very well may go to the primary care doctor, and, and he or she might actually refer you to a neurologist, a, yes. a specialist. Okay. Yes. Um, so, so Harriet, someone gets through this process, and they, uh, and then they are in fact diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, what's the first thing someone should do if they are diagnosed with a brain tumor? Um, and uh, you know, let's talk about also the idea of second opinions and, and, and the importance of that. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I think is very interesting is that over half of brain tumor patients actually don't have symptoms. So there are a lot of people that get diagnosed because they are in a car accident or they fall on the ice and they get taken to the emergency room. People do a scan and boom, they have a brain tumor. Um, That may be more typical for some of the benign tumors. But because of that, some people are told you need to be rushed into surgery. Other people are told we're going to watch and wait for six months. And so kind of how much time people have right at the beginning really varies based on their tumor. Um, I think in that early phase, one of the things we really encourage people to do is to get seen by a treatment center that really specializes in brain tumors. Um, I certainly hear a lot about brain tumors in my job, and I um, feel like, you know, we see them in the news, but they're really relatively rare. So there are a number of physicians that may not have had a lot of experience treating brain tumors, and we really want people to have the opportunity to get the best possible information. And... um, That's not just, you know, getting your surgery, but it's all the journey you're going to have after that as you're sort of going through your treatment and continuing life um, as a brain tumor survivor. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, is it, do you, do you guys recommend there that folks 
kind of always get a second opinion on brain tumor, or is it um, uh, if, if, if somebody sort of feels confident in what their doctor's telling them and the doctor's making a treatment recommendation, should they go ahead with that, or what, what, what's the relevance of a second opinion? Absolutely. I think um, in my conversations with patients, I find that people are sometimes surprised to learn that not all, all doctors agree on the best course of treatment, and that, in fact, there's, medicine is not an exact science. So the way I talk about it with patients is to say, you know, the more information you can get, the more prepared you're going to feel to make the decisions that you need to make. So I definitely think anytime there's surgery involved, anytime you have a serious illness, getting a second opinion, or in some cases people even get a third opinion, um, it just makes you feel more prepared and more empowered in the decisions that you're going to need to make. Um, But we also know not everyone has access to the biggest or the best or the most specialized treatment centers, and that's really where organizations like the National Brain Tumor Society come in because we have access to a lot of information and can help walk people through some of that decision-making. Okay. All right. Harriet, we've got just a couple minutes until our break, but um, tell us about your organization, the National Brain Tumor Society. Well, we were founded about 30 years ago by patients and by families, and so a lot of our patient services are really directed towards the needs that patients and families have experienced, a need for information about their tumor, information about their treatment options, information about how to live day-to-day with their disease. We offer an 800 number in English and Spanish that people can call into, a website at braintumor.org, a peer support program, treatment center database, conferences, online message boards, and many more services that are all offered free of charge. And... um, do you, uh, do you serve people who have both malignant and benign brain tumors? We do. We probably hear half and half from both groups, and um, we serve people with primary and metastatic tumors through our 800 number and our information as well. Mm-hmm. So you have an 800 number, you have a website, you have uh, patient support services, a whole wide range of services for people with any form of a brain tumor. That's right. That's right. Fantastic. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, your host. Today we are talking about uh, brain tumors, really trying to sort through uh, uh, fact or fiction around uh, brain tumors. We are are getting the facts today with two experts from the National Brain Tumor Society, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. In 1977, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. The odds of that same boy winning the U.S. Open twice, one in 1.2 billion. The odds of him having a child diagnosed with autism, one in 150. Ernie Else encourages you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online 
online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and today we're talking about brain tumors, uh, which has been in the news recently uh, after Senator uh, Edward Kennedy's recent death from a brain tumor. I'm here with Dr. Mary Lovely, Medical Information Specialist and Associate Director of Research for the National Brain Tumor Society, and Harriet Patterson, Director of Patient Services, also at the National Brain Tumor Society. Um, National Brain Tumor Society is a good friend uh, of the wellness community, and we've done uh, a number of projects and initiatives together. Uh, Mary, Senator Kennedy was diagnosed with a malignant glioma. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what that is and how the senator's cancer might uh, might have been treated? And really, again, once someone's been diagnosed, what are some of the treatment options um, uh, for uh, for a brain tumor? Oh, Kim, I'd, I'd love to talk about this. Um, a malignant glioma is a tumor that has started to rapidly invade the brain. And a malignant glioma usually is, is called an anaplastic, uh, has anaplastic features. And anaplastic means that the cells have just de-differentiated. There, there's no structure and no function of these normal cells anymore. And they're just, they're, they're constantly uh, dividing, but there's, there's no structure and function left in these cells, and, they, and they're dividing fast. These gliomas also have a feature where they're web-like, so these, they're fingers that move into the normal brain. So it's really impossible to remove the entire tumor with surgery. So you can remove the bulk of the tumor, but there's always these little web-like processes that have already moved into normal tissue. And that's kind of the, when I think of a malignant brain tumor, that's what I, that's what I have the picture in my mind. Okay. Um, the, the standard treatment for malignant glioma, and one of which Senator Kennedy may have received, because I'm not sure exactly what he received, yes. was first of all surgery surgery for removal of the tumor as much as possible, but when, uh, when people have surgery, uh, the neurosurgeon is very careful to not lose function, such as speech, memory, or movement, and so they can't always remove the whole tumor if it's in a speech area or memory or movement area of your brain, mm-hmm. people that can control that part. And then after they've had the surgery, it would be followed by radiation and chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy used is called temozolomide. So they do this combination for six weeks. And then after that, uh, the radiation, the uh, people usually will receive temozolomide for six to 12 months, temozolomide alone. Now, uh, and if this works, that's great. 
but um, malignant gliomas do have a tendency to recur. So if the tumor recurs, then they're taken off the temozolomide and another drug is tried. And the most common drug right now that is used is called bevacizumab. Mm -hmm. And bevacizumab is a drug that decreases the blood supply to the tumor. So then they try that and hope that that will also uh, stop the tumor from growing. I see. I see. Um, now, there are some other treatment options yeah, uh, yeah. that could be used, and some of the surgical, during surgery, sometimes they uh, place surge, uh, chemotherapy discs right in, the, um, right in the tumor bed, and that'll slow down the tumor, and sometimes they actually uh, apply heat to the tumor bed, and that'll decrease the, the chance for the tumor to grow. And what's that called? Does that have a name? Um, it's, just, it's called heat shock therapy. Okay, okay. And also they have experimental therapies, more chemotherapies as well. I think, Kim, if I can just jump in, one of the things from a patient standpoint that can be challenging about a brain tumor is there's so many possible differences based on where the tumor is located in the brain. Mm -hmm. So someone can have a fairly large tumor in one part of the brain, they can operate no problem. And in other parts of the brain, uh, even a small tumor would be very hard to remove. So all of that impacts what kind of treatments people have, what kind of symptoms they have, and also what's going to be available to them, you know, down the line. So it can be a pretty complicated decision-making process for the patient. Yes, and actually Mary is available. Dr. Lovely speaks to patients and families on the phone as they're mm-hmm. trying to navigate those complicated decisions. Wow, that's great to know. Now, now what about um, clinical trials for brain tumors? Are there clinical trials out there? Is that something that you talk about with patients when they call? Are doctors potentially offering patients clinical trials as a treatment option for their brain tumor, Mary? Oh, oh clinical trials are, are a really, really important part of of therapy, but, you know, over the years we've made really slow progress in finding treatments because only 3% of people with malignant tumors uh, participate in clinical trials. <laughs> but, but clinical trials are so important because, um, because it, the actual treatment, uh, it, it, may, it will help us move, uh, move the science forward. Uh, we, there are, there's 250 to 400 clinical trials going on, but the problem is, is uh, a lot of people do not uh, go into the clinical trials. Yeah, yeah, I know. We, we've come across that quite a bit, that uh, a lot of people maybe necessarily don't really even understand what trials are. Well, and you know, we've made great advances in better surgical treatments and more powerful focused radiation therapy and targeted chemotherapy because of clinical trials. And uh, uh, to... it. To explain to people the importance of it uh, is hard. Now, there are a couple very, very good institutions, uh, uh, UCSF, Duke, uh, uh, MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic. These places do clinical trials and have uh, wonderful setups. But, you know, um, we believe in clinical trials, but each person has their own choice whether they'll be on them. It does make a difference, and it does move the science forward. Right. One of the other things I think is is great is that we are starting to see a lot more community settings participating in clinical trials, so you don't have to be at the biggest institution because your um, hospital or physician's office may participate in concert with one of those bigger institutions and be able to offer a clinical trial even in your local area. So um, we just want to encourage people to really explore all the various options and make sure they feel comfortable with the treatment choices that they're making. 
So it's really worth asking your doctor, might there be a clinical trial for me, even if maybe there isn't something that's appropriate? Um, it's uh, perhaps important for patients to also put that on the table, Harriet? Absolutely. And if you don't feel that you're getting an adequate um, sort of answer there or you have additional questions, mm-hmm. contacting an external advocacy organization that specializes in helping you um, kind of search for trials may help you bring that information back to your doctor or to another doctor or what have you. So it's definitely worth asking, and if you don't get the information you need, it's definitely worth asking um, an organization like ours or like some of the other groups that exist to help people match up with clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. Now, Harriet, we've talked about, we've talked about a lot of different treatments. We've talked about surgery. We've talked about radiation. We've talked about chemotherapy. What are some of the side effects of these different treatment uh, modalities and what are some of the ways that, that people can cope with some of those side effects? Well, some of them are, are things that other cancer patients may experience, like fatigue and stress and anxiety. Um, but, but fatigue, for example, I think is actually even further exacerbated in brain tumor patients because not only do you have just the sort of physical fatigue from going through these treatments and sort of them working on your body in that way, um, you also have kind of a sometimes a slowed brain processing. So people find that, you know, even though for their whole lives they've been perfectly able to multitask and, you know, get their kids off to school while they're making their breakfast and, you know, talking on the phone, suddenly even the smallest task takes all of their focus and concentration and exhausts them. And so one of the things we like to do is to prepare people that during radiation um, and possibly during chemotherapy, they're going to experience that or it's very likely and to plan for that and help them anticipate some of those things so that they're not caught, caught by surprise. We also encourage people to sort of take an active management role in their um, in, in their illness. So if that means that they need to um, work with someone at the cancer center to talk about exercise or maybe attend a program in yoga. I know wellness community offers different kinds of meditation or yoga workshops um, and other people might have things at their cancer center. We want to encourage people to identify symptoms or side effects that are causing them problems and to look around for the resources that are there available to them um, Another issue that people sometimes have is related to stress and anxiety, and I I can't emphasize enough how important it is to attend to the very real emotional and sort of psychological impact that this kind of an illness has, not just for the patient, but for the caregiver. So we want to encourage people to seek out support resources, to find ways to manage stress, whether it's meditation or massage or... um, any number of other um, sort of services or resources that may be out there. I think that brain tumors are something people are going to live with for, you know, the balance of their lives, and what we want is to encourage people to manage that in the best way they can so that they're not at home sort of struggling with a symptom and, and a side effect and not getting help for it. So there are ways that people can learn to live well, even in the face of a difficult diagnosis. Absolutely. And when I talk to long-term survivors, I was just talking to someone on the phone last week, you know, that is exactly what they've, sort of how they've flipped this around. You know, I'm going to make my life how I want it to be. I'm going to, you know, sort of pile on the resources, pile on the support, and, um, and really share my story with others and feel that sort of surge of positive energy that comes from helping other people through this alongside me. So I think it's really important to kind of 
try to find that active role that you can take um, so that you can feel more empowered. You know, Harriet, before we go uh, to break quickly, I know we talked for a minute about uh, some of the complementary or integrative things that people are doing to help battle their uh, their brain tumors about you know, yoga and, and, and exercise and diet. And But are there are there people who take an alternative, uh, alternative route? Are there people who don't want traditional treatment, traditional chemotherapy? And, and uh, you know, do you come across folks who, who say that they don't want those traditional types of treatments? We do. We come across people all along the spectrum. Some people want to do things in addition to their care. Some people want to do things instead of their care. Um, at the National Brain Tumor Society, we really encourage people to have a very open dialogue with their health providers to ensure that they're not going to do anything that sort of goes against or works against their treatment plan. Um, and there can be surprising interactions that you wouldn't expect. So it's important to communicate with our, your healthcare professional. And, you so know, example, obviously... If you're, ta- if you're taking vitamins or, or supplements exactly, that could interact exactly. with your chemotherapy... Exactly, because there can be interactions there. And we also really want to encourage people to be very educated and savvy consumers because there are also a lot of false promises out there in the world. And, you know, as someone has <laughs> has said to me before, if this were the miracle cure, we would eventually see it on the mainstream media. So I think just you have to be aware and you have to be your own advocate and ask questions um, and, and, you know, make the best decisions you can for yourself. But really be wary of those, quote-unquote, miracle cures. Yes, I think you have to be because the Internet has allowed people to market directly yeah. these days, and so you really need to be thinking about, you know, if, if, if it's legitimate, you know, then you'll be able to go in with your doctor and say this is something that interests me. Right, and let's talk it through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about uh, brain tumors. We're really trying to sort out... Uh, fact from fiction. We're trying to get the facts about uh, about brain tumors. We're talking with uh, two experts from the National Brain Tumor Society. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. McGruff the Crime Dog here with my nephew Scruff. Here's the address for my new free comic activity book. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. It shows kids what to do about guns and drugs and bullies and strangers. And it's got games and puzzles, too. Write it down now. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, A public service message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Crime Prevention Coalition, and the Ad Council. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're here with Harriet Patterson, Director of Patient Services at the National Brain Tumor Society, and Dr. Mary Lovely, Medical Information Specialist and Associate Director of Research, also at the National Brain Tumor Society. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about symptoms and, and treatment options. Um, another important component that I want us to talk about today, and we've started to touch on it um, a, a little bit, uh, Harriet, in addition to medical treatment, tell us why it's important for uh, brain tumor patients to also have um, a strong emotional support system, and you know, and, and, and what do you recommend for folks, uh, you know, who've been diagnosed? Well, one of the things I think can be challenging is that not all. I don't think our healthcare system and our medical system is necessarily set up to adequately pay attention to all the complex parts of people as they experience things like cancer. And I think we're moving in that direction, but I don't think we're there yet. And so what happens is it often falls to individuals themselves to recognize, I'm struggling here, or I need to pay attention to this part of my disease. Um, I think quality of life, if you look at research out there, this term quality of life is comprised of a lot more than just your physical health. So we need to look at social well-being and emotional well-being and psychological well-being and even spiritual well-being when you're faced with an illness like cancer that's really, it's an unexpected crisis. Um, we also like to get people thinking about the long haul and the long-term picture. And to do that, to sustain yourself through this, the ups and downs that can come with a brain tumor, you need to be putting into place a support system that's going to be able to sort of take that journey with you. Um, we also encourage people to think about who they are as individuals. Some people love being in groups. Other people really don't want to be in groups of people but love to be you know, individually talking with someone or sharing with someone. Mm -hmm. Some people would prefer to have a professional. Other people are comfortable going to their own families. And I think the important thing is there's not a one-size-fits-all, but this is an opportunity for people to really sort of find a way to reach out and pay attention to the sort of emotional ups and downs that they may be feeling, both at diagnosis, through treatment, and at any milestones that come up, like your annual MRI or your monthly MRI appointment. Whenever you have anxiety or you feel stressed or worried, um, to have a place that you can go and share those feelings and experiences and connect with other people. And, and what about, Harriet, support for, for friends and family? You talk about having a good support system around, and, and um, uh, we know that oftentimes uh, friends and particularly family members are stepping up as caregivers. They're really putting themselves forward here, and then uh, we're finding that sometimes there's not a support system for those caregivers who are bearing a great deal of the, the, the stress and even really the daily kind of practical burden of a, of a diagnosis of a, of a brain tumor. Does the National Brain Tumor Society offer any uh, services for, for, for caregivers? We do, and we, we've, um, I think partly because we were formed originally by family members as well as patients, and because we hear so much from caregivers on our phone line, um, we began recognizing eight, nine years ago the importance of really trying to 
get this group of people, you know, informed and also provide them with some opportunities for networking and connection and support. Um, we offer an online uh, caregiver program that really allows people to get information right from the source. We offer um, a caregiver support network so we can match someone who's maybe the spouse of a newly diagnosed patient up with someone who's already been doing this for several years so that they can exchange information and support one another. And most importantly, we really try to emphasize that, you know, caregivers are bearing the brunt of this work and we know that they have a really hard job. So, we want them to recognize themselves as caregivers and start identifying that there are resources out there that they can be taking advantage of, whether it's emotional supportive resources or more things like respite services. We just want people to recognize early on yeah. the need to sort of pay attention to themselves and their own needs while they're doing this really hard job. Right, because that's how they'll be the best caregiver. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Mary Lovely, let me pull you back into this conversation here. Um, as you know, cancer has become more of a of a chronic illness. In fact, there are more than 12 million cancer survivors living in the United States today, which is a surprise to some people. So let's talk about survivorship. What are some common things that people may experience after finishing treatment for a brain tumor? What are some of the survivorship issues uh, that, uh, that folks may need to think about? Well, Kim, when I think of survivorship for brain tumor, people with brain tumors, it's different than the cancer group. They are still dealing with the um, idea of having to live with a life-threatening illness, but they have a unique component, and that is the cognitive com- component. Mm-hmm. Things have really changed. Uh, and one and of tell the people things, what that, that, that uh, word cognitive means. Cognitive means is Mary. brain um, changes in thinking. A person can often experience a difficulty in short-term memory, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this means having difficulty with remembering things that recently happened. Like if your wife uh, told you something this morning, you might forget it. Or when you were in the doctor's office, you may forget what what happened in the doctor's office. So it's always really good to bring someone in with you. Mm -hmm. And these can be chronic problems. Or what a colleague said at work while while you were running down the hall and you said, oh, I can't remember that anymore. You know, we have a little bit of that, but people who are surviving a brain tumor, this is, this is a daily issue for them. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's really hard. So they have to have all new tools to try to work with, these short, with short-term memory. Another huge problem is difficulty multitasking. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you and thinking about other things. It can't, that doesn't happen anymore. They have to change and think about means, what it means to take one activity at a time. Be very focused. Very focused. And another a very common symptom, as Harriet uh, talked about, is fatigue. And I bring it up again because of this overwhelming uh, uh, feeling of tiredness, and it's not helped with sleep. just changes your life. Uh, a person feels exhausted and must learn to arrange activities differently. So I would say that survivorship means changing your life and finding that new normal where you can lead a slow-paced life and still have a wonderful quality of life. It does look different for almost every person, whether it's a benign or whether it's a malignant tumor. Yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of sort of medical follow-up, are folks going back for a regular uh, MRI? Are they sort of trained to, to, they, to look oh, yes, for a recurrence do. and look um, for other they, symptoms? Yes, oh yes, they keep going back and there you have that uncertainty of what is going to be on my next MRI. If you have a malignant tumor, you go back every three or four months. If you have a benign tumor, some, as I mentioned, some benign tumors are slow-growing tumors. And so they have to go, people have to go back about every year for that. So uh, medical treatment, 
I think it's really, really important to keep going back and having that relationship with your, with your doctor. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk for a minute, Mary, about communication with the, with, with the healthcare team. Um, how important is it to have those channels of, of, of communication open? I would imagine some patients might, might feel a little, uh, a little nervous about maybe being totally honest with the doctor about what's going on with them um, uh, or, or, or maybe feel like they don't have a good relationship uh, with the doctor. What should folks do in that oh, instance? Well, first of all, it's totally, it's so important to communicate your feelings with the doctor and if not to the doctor, to communicate your feelings to the nurses. And um, because when I think of people with neurological injuries, they look normal, but they're actually the walking wounded because um, you can't tell that they're having all these problems. Um, Many people are suffering from poor memory. They're suffering from depression and fatigue. And there are some things we can do about this. With the memory problems, you can go to a neuropsychologist and find new tools. But if you don't have communication with your physician and tell them, tell the physician or the nurse that you're really having problems, you can't get the help you need. So, so if, you're, if you're really suffering from some pretty serious, you know, longer-term side effects from the treatment, there are things people can do. There, there's, there's sort of types of therapy and things like that that people can do to help improve to help improve yes. memory and help improve verbal skills and things like that? Yes. Oh, yes. There, who are uh, the specialists who do that? Uh, it mostly uh, cognitive rehabilitation specialists and neuropsychologists. Okay. Uh, neuropsychologists are, are really helpful because first they measure what the deficits are, and then they're able to tell you this is how we can fix this. This is how we can give you tools to aid you in your memory or aid you in your speech, things like that. Uh-huh. And so can you just tell us a little bit more about that? What are, what are some of those kinds of tools or exercises or activities that people might, might go through? Uh, they, they will sit down and, first of all, you know, like I say, make an assessment. And then some of the, the tools are the brain games that people use on the video games now, mm-hmm. a lot of journaling and learning how to, how to remember, uh, how to remember uh, names and, and have to make a routine of remembering names. So it's, it's, it's learning... Uh, new tools in memory. Yeah. Kim, we, I met a, a gentleman once who had had some memory problems, and I was so impressed with the way that he had figured out, you know, he had index cards in his top pocket, and as soon as he met me, he said, I have memory problems, so I write things down on these cards, and they help me remember. And he had just embraced that as a part of who he was, mm. and it was a very low-tech and simple tool, but it meant he was able to go off on his own to do his job, to participate in social activities, and he always had these cards that helped cue him at the end of the day as to things he needed to remember. And sometimes it's a simple thing like that, but, but if people don't express they're having that problem, they can't really get that little, you know, sort of tip to help them move past it. Mm-hmm. And they, they usually have to go back several times and learn it and have to practice these skills because it's easy to say, I don't really need these, and then they'll go out and, and not use these skills and then not find their car in the parking lot things like that. So it's just really important to, and yes, there are some, there's some people out there that can really make a difference in quality of life. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, 
also, uh, it sounds like a lot of what people are really going to be dealing with perhaps after uh, the treatment is, you know, really some, some frustration around some of these practical changes in their lives. But I think what, you're, you, what you ladies are saying is that there's some real encouragement out there. There are ways to deal with, uh, ways to deal with this and some experts uh, who can help through this. Um, we are going to go to um, a quick break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice, what if something happens? Will you come get me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're here with Dr. Mary Lovely, Medical Information Specialist and Associate Director of Research for the National Brain Tumor Society, and Harriet Patterson, who is the Director of Patient Services, also uh, at the National Brain Tumor Society. And the National Brain Tumor Society is a great organization, a longtime partner of the wellness community, and we're very uh, pleased to have uh, both of you on the show here today. Um, Mary, are, are, are there any new medical advances and treatments for brain tumors that we should look out for, any, any promising things on the horizon? Oh, you know, there, there are, and it, it's a very exciting time to, uh, to be part of the medical research community. Um, there are some, uh, first of all, uh, many clinical trials are focused on what we call targeted therapies, uh, and these drugs target genes or pathways in the brain that have developed abnormalities. So several drugs are now being tested to counteract these abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Another set of drugs is the anti-angiogenic drugs, and these drugs stop the blood supply to the tumor. Uh, there are several new drugs out there, and so if we can stop that blood supply, that will also be fantastic. 
And then another very exciting field is the immunology, where researchers are using vaccines and viruses and making a, a very big difference. Uh, I will say that all of these therapies are not ready for approval. Uh, we have a ways to go, but we're starting to make a lot of progress. Mary, do you guys have clinical trials listed on your website or some resource that you refer patients to for clinical trials? Uh, we do. We do. We, um, we usually refer them to clinicaltrials.gov, but Harriet, you might want to speak about... Uh, yes. We're very excited that in um, later this month, we're actually going to be launching um, through a partnership with the Emerging Med, a clinical trials matching service on our website. So patients will actually be able to not just get a long list of, of trials, but they will be able to find trials that really match up with where they are in their treatment and their specific situation. Um, so to help people make that link a little bit easier. You know, I've heard uh, I've heard some people say that uh, that uh, a trial was never offered to them, or that a clinical trial never came up in a discussion with their doctor, and they started a particular treatment, and after they started treatment, learned about a trial, but then they realized that they didn't then qualify for the trial because they already started uh, started treatment. So I would say, Harriet, it's important that. Uh, Folks ask about trials up front and really understand what trials are and whether there might be a trial that's appropriate for them. The clinical trials are not just for, just a sort of a last-ditch effort um, for people with cancer. Would you agree? Absolutely not. We're seeing nowadays so many more trials that are offered up front, trials that are offered about quality of life or survivorship issues, um, trials that may be offered alongside standard therapies. So we really want to encourage people to um, see clinical trials as an important part of what's out there and available for the brain tumor community. We don't have that many actually approved therapies right now. So trials are an important way for people to access other treatment options for themselves, and we want people to be informed and educated about them. Um, but we also want to acknowledge that we have a, a long way to go in terms of awareness, and that includes health professionals. Some people are being seen by health professionals that really don't see a lot of brain tumor patients, and so they may have a more dire sort of outlook, and we need to help patients know that they have to be their own best advocates and go informed into their doctor's appointments. They can call us and get questions they should ask. We want everyone to know the name of their tumor and, and sort of feel that they have the information they need to go forward in their treatment planning. And I, I just wanted to add that yes, Mary. Uh, the nice part about uh, uh, many of the, the chemotherapy clinical trials is, as Harriet said, you will be getting the standard therapy, plus you will be getting an extra drug or more treatments. So that is comforting to me to know that I'm not taking a flyer, something totally off the wall that they don't know works at all. You're going to get the standard therapy, plus they're going to add on some other things. Well, that's a good thing. Well, maybe uh, we know that um, the standard therapy uh, increases survival. Well, maybe adding on some of these other drugs will even give a better boost. So, the, so you could be getting we, you could be getting what the new standard therapy is going to be in advance of everybody else. Right, right. Well, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it's also important what you're saying, Mary, that a lot of folks think that in a, in a clinical trial, you're always, there's always going to be one part of the trial that's a, that's a placebo or a sugar pill. Right. But I think it's important for people to know that in, in, in cancer treatment trials, there's not, you're not going to get a placebo. One arm is going to be the standard treatment, and the other is going to be probably the standard treatment plus something else. And I think people really need to go in to their doctor and say, I'm interested in clinical trials. And, and then the doctor will consider referring you to the local university who is doing the clinical trials. Yeah. But if you don't ask, 
they often will just handle it themselves in the community. Great, great. Uh, quickly, Harriet, um, I know that the National Brain Tumor Society is also involved in some policy and advocacy issues and some things on Capitol Hill. Uh, tell us a little bit about what some of the hot issues are uh, right now and, you know, in, in, in the work that you're doing and, um, and what our listeners can do to help advance that work. Sure. Well, the, the National Brain Tumor Society is part of a coalition of brain tumor organizations called the Na- uh, North American Brain Tumor Coalition, and it's a national advocacy group that uh, focuses on policy that affect the brain tumor community. Two of our big things right now have to do with research funding levels um, because without research, we really can't advance our understanding of this disease um, and also healthcare reform. We know there are over 600,000 people living in the U.S. affected by primary brain tumors alone right now today, and many of them don't have the adequate access to health care that's at a high-quality level that they need in order to um, to fight this disease. And so we want to encourage people to be engaged in that discussion. And to stay engaged, you need to be informed. So we're encouraging people to sign up on our e-news alerts. Our e-news alerts will be where the action is when um, the health care reform debate continues beginning next week. And also where we'll... Uh, let people know about any other advocacy um, action alerts that they need to be aware of as part of the brain tumor community. This is a large but spread out community of patients and families, and we want people to, um, to raise their voices and raise their hands and be a part of this discussion and be counted. Great, and I'm going to tell folks at the end of the show how they can reach you, Harriet. Um, we are we are closing in on the end of our show today, and I'd like to ask each of you quickly uh, if you could offer one piece of advice to someone who has been diagnosed with a brain tumor, who is actively battling a brain tumor, or, or caring for a loved one uh, with a brain tumor. What would that be? What would that piece of advice be? I'll start with you, Mary. Uh, my piece of advice, Kim, is for a person with a brain tumor, our caregivers, is to know that they are not alone that many services are available by phone, by email, and by Internet to find the best treatment options, but also to manage the nagging symptoms that may last for a lifetime. And to let the doctors and nurses know what is happening so you and your loved one are able to get the proper resources for the best quality of life. Great. Great advice, Mary. Harriet? I think the main thing I want to encourage people to do is to be informed and to get informed. This is an overwhelming disease. It comes with a whole new vocabulary of words that you may have never known before. Um, And you're faced with a lot of decisions to make, and it it can be really overwhelming. And we want people to feel as empowered as they can to face those those choices. And to be prepared, you need information. So that's where organizations like ours and yours and others that are out there come in, um, and we want to encourage people to take advantage of those. Great. Great advice, ladies. You, you've just been wonderful and have offered so much valuable information to our listeners today. Um, if you would like more information about the National Brain Tumor Society, visit their website at www.braintumor.org uh, or call their toll-free number 800 800- Seven seven zero eight two eight seven. 8287 They also have a patient services hotline at 1-800-934-2873. If you'd like information about the Wellness Community and Gilda's Club and our educational and support services, call us at 888-793-WELL or visit www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Um, remember to follow Frankly Speaking About Cancer, this show on uh, Twitter. Uh, get the latest uh, in cancer in the news. You can also uh, provide us with uh, feedback and let us know what show topics you'd like for us to cover in uh, future episodes. 
uh, I would like to dedicate today's show to the memory uh, of Senator Edward Kennedy, uh, his legacy of unwavering determination, uh, particularly surrounding health policy and uh, civil rights, had a profound impact on the lives of all Americans. Um, and on behalf of, uh, of everyone affected by cancer, thank you, uh, Senator Kennedy, and our, our thoughts and prayers continue to be with, uh, with Senator uh, Kennedy's family. Um, it's really been a great show uh, today and uh, again, I just I want to thank our guest, Dr. Uh, Dr. Mary uh, Lovely, um, who is associate director of research for the National Brain Tumor Society, and Harriet Patterson, director of patient services, also at the National Brain Tumor Society. Um, and again, you can visit their website at www.braintumor.org. Uh, That's all today for frankly speaking about cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.